Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Here we go. Time for another week. The beginning of a new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have all of you with us. I hope you had a restful and most important, a, a healthy uh, weekend and are all set. We are for the final push one week plus a day before Election Day, uh, November 3rd. Uh, you know, early voting, of course, continues right here in Georgia. We have another five days of it, including today. It ends on the 30th on Friday. By the time we get to Friday, we could have we could be approaching, if not exceeding, Three million early uh, votes, which is really a, a staggering uh, number of people who uh, may may vote. We're expecting some five million people to vote overall in the election, and so well over half may have already voted by the time we reach election day. We're going to talk a bit about that. But it, you know, if you ever wonder whether your vote counts. And I know there are times when people do, they say, well, what difference does it make if I go to the polls? All you have to do is look at the poll we're going to look at in a few minutes from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which shows us that the presidential race here in Georgia, that Senate race number one, are virtual ties at this point a week out from the election. We'll also look at uh, the, uh, we'll drill down a bit and look at the uh, uh, other questions that were asked, approval ratings of the candidates, what issues matter most to Georgians. So let's get right to it. Jim Galloway is our partner on the Monday and Friday show. He's the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the paper, and he oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. And of course, Jim Galloway, you're with us today. How you doing, Jim? I'm doing great. I'm do- counting down the days. Uh, I, I keep looking at the calendar and it says, it, it, I think I'm right. It says October 26 and, and this, this race in Georgia <laughs> to all, every race in Georgia is just, just so very tight. Yeah. Yeah. It's astonishing to see it. And as I said, we're going to drill down on the numbers from, uh, your polling on that. We're also joined today, uh, by the 34th mayor of East Point, Georgia. Mayor Deanna Holiday Ingram comes back to the show. Uh, we're really pleased to have you back at this point, Mayor Ingram. Thanks for being here. As we say hello to you, tell us, how's the early voting going down in East Point? I mean, it's an honor to be here. Um, early voting is actually going well. I just looked at the numbers. So the last unofficial numbers for um, the county um, go through October 20th, and we've had a total of 4,385 votes cast at our early voting location. Um, the only thing that I could think to compare it to was our 2017 general election, which is when we have the highest turnout. And in that election, we had 4,531 total votes cast. And so when we think about turnout, it seems to be very, very good. Um, and of course, I'm, there's, I'm not trying to make the assumption that all 4,385 votes are East Pointers. But if you look at our last highest vote turnout, um, you, it, it looks like we're doing extremely well, and I'm really excited about that. Are you, are you having any uh, problems with the technology that's slowing things down? You know, I don't believe so. I, I voted, I think, on the third day of early voting. Um, the first day I rode by and the lines were around the building, but I think it was just turnout. There was a slow start. 
but I haven't heard any technology issues of any technology issues since then. Um, and there's been a steady stream of voters. I was in and okay. out of 10 minutes. Um, well, like, Oh, good for you. Um, we're also joined today by Todd Ream. He is the founder, the uh, editor, the uh, chief writer. He's all things uh, GeorgiaPundit.com, one of the best daily newsletters you can get if you want to look not just at stories uh, that affect us nationally across the state, but as I've said on the show many times, Todd, you also do a terrific job drilling down and bringing us news from uh, communities across Georgia. How you how are you doing, Todd, as we get down to the final week? I'm doing real well. And uh, like I think everybody else on the panel, I'm looking forward to the day when we have uh, only retrospective things to say about the 2020 elections and frankly, all of 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let's put this here behind us. Uh, professor Alan Abramowitz, a political science professor at Emory University, is back. Alan, you've been wonderful. You have responded to our request that we have you on the show often as we approach Election Day. We're going to have to find you a second office at GPB. That is, if we ever go back to our offices at GPB. But, Alan, thank you so much for being here again. Yeah, it's great to be here. I mean, it's very exciting times right now. For those, especially for those of us who study elections. Um, so I'm happy to, happy to join you. Well, so as long as the ball's in your court, let me just ask you, as you see the numbers of early voters, whether it's absentee ballots that are now being uh, counted, accepted and counted, uh, not counted, processed, I apologize for that, uh, or in-person early vote, do we have any reason to read anything into the tea leaves? I mean, we assume that Democrats tend to vote early, but that really doesn't tell us anything about what we might see from Republicans on Election Day, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a little bit harder to tell in Georgia because we don't have party registration. Um, but we know that, uh, according to the public opinion polls, that the uh, Democrats are more likely to indicate that they plan to vote early, uh, either uh, particularly by absentee ballot or in person. Uh, Republicans more likely to say they'll vote on Election Day. So based on that and what we've seen in other states where they do have party registration, uh, it, it is Democrats voting uh, uh, heavily in the early voting, uh, Republicans waiting. Uh, but, but you're right. I mean, I, I don't think that we can necessarily read too much in, in, into that. We'll have to wait until we see what the overall turnout looks like. I, I think Republicans are a little bit nervous, though, about the fact that so many of their voters, are, uh, according to what we're seeing, in the early voting data are, are, are holding off uh, and planning to vote on election day just because, uh, you know, you're never sure what's going to happen on election day, what could happen with the weather, whether people lose interest, um, if they think that there's no chance to win, you know, things like this can happen. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll find out in a few days what the story is. Mm -hmm. Jim, uh, uh, Georgia is uh, just one of the many states with early voting underway, of course, and we're now seeing uh, that some, we're, we're approaching 60 million early votes or absentee ballots count, uh, already uh, turned in across the country. That's a staggering number and an indication of just how big the appetite is for people to engage in this race. Yeah, it's 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 a measure of intensity. It measures uh, it it is uh, it's a it's a measure of how people view uh, the uncertain nature of of where we're headed. I think. 
Uh, it, it's it's interesting, especially, and I and I I got to bring it back to to, to Georgia. Uh, I, I will tell you what uh, I've, I am one of the few people I think left in Metro Atlanta with a landline, and and I keep it specifically for this season so I can <laughs> so I can get those robocalls. You know, I had Julio Julio Castro call me. I had uh, Cory Booker call me over the weekend, but. The the, the 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 entity that called me the most like i mean like five six seven eight maybe ten times was the nrsc the national republican uh, uh senate Cam- uh, committee they are uh, uh, to alan's point uh i think they're they're worried that they're going to be overwhelmed that, that their their voters aren't going to show up on tuesday and they are just pushing like crazy to get republican voters out uh, out early this week and is that is that what the message is? Simply get out and Absolutely. cast Just your get ballot out and now, vote. or they say- yes, it's it's get out and vote. It's it, they take no position in the in the Luffler, Doug, uh, Doug Doug Collins Kelly Luffler contest. It's just get out and vote. Okay. Um, well, until we have uh, returns come in starting next Tuesday night, uh, what we do have are polls. And Jim, the AJC released its latest poll overnight last night, early this morning. It's in the newspaper. It's on. Uh, the AJC website. And uh, as we've seen in virtually every other major poll of Georgia, the AJC's uh, numbers show that Trump and Biden are in a virtual tie. I mean, if you want to look at the actual number, Biden's at 47, Trump's at 46. But I think you have a four a four point margin of error. So this thing is a a tie Uh, from a historical point of view, Jim. Uh, although Trump won the state by a small margin in 2016, for this this race to be a push right now uh, really says something about the direction George is headed, no matter whether Trump pulls it out by a small margin or not. Yeah, I mean, in, typically in, in elections like these, we we see the we see the Democratic vote kind of fade away slightly. In the last two weeks of, of of a campaign, and that's not not happening. Uh, and by the way, this the AJC poll is one thousand one hundred forty five voter likely voters surveyed. It's got an, uh, a margin of error of three percent. This is a good a good poll. Our, our partners in this was the university uh, was uh, the University of Georgia. Uh, it's uh, it's I think it's I think it's a pretty darn solid poll. Todd, the fact that they're measuring likely voters, just for those of our listeners who don't spend as much time worrying about how data is collected, likely voters is always the standard you want to use. You Registered voters tend not to mean as much because many registered voters don't show up. So if it is likely voters and a three-point margin of error, uh, you've got to think that they're right on, on the mark. What? But, but Todd, here's the question. Jim said an important thing. We've seen elections past where Democrats look like they're starting to gain momentum here. And at the end, Republican voters come home and cast their ballots for Republicans. Jim thinks that may not be the case this time around. What are you thinking, Todd, as you look at first their presidential numbers? I want to start with addressing uh, what you started by asking me about, which is the likely voters question. Um, That is one of the things that bedevils uh, practitioners, at least. I I don't know the extent to which academics uh, concern themselves with it, but it's it's really one of the toughest nuts to crack. Um, A few years ago, uh, 2016 and before, the simplest measure for me to use was past voting behavior. 
uh, more than 80% of the people who would show up at any given election were the same people who showed up at that last election. Uh, today, in the sort of uh, multi-million dollar voter drive turnout uh, model, that's no longer quite as, as applicable. And, and so it's hard to say, it's, it's hard to really assess what, what measures of likelihood to vote are. Um, the second part of that is intensity to vote. And, and I think that's a big question for Republicans as physically vote is whether they're going to get in their cars and go to the polls and stay there for perhaps hours at a time. And intensity has historically been a very difficult thing to, to, to survey, uh, especially when you have a limited number of questions. So uh, there are a lot of open questions as we head into uh, the election, but I am uh, concerned as I am every election with the fact that Republicans leave it all on the table and want to sweep it up on election day, just because that leaves so many things to chance. Yeah, uh, I think there are a couple of things that are uh, complicating the calculations this year. One is that we have a, a, a large number of new voters. So in, in trying to figure out who's going to show up at the polls, um, when we're looking at people who uh, have a history of turnout, as Todd was saying, you know, it's generally pretty safe to predict that those people who have voted previously are going to vote again. Um, but when we're looking at newly registered voters, you're not as sure whether they're actually going to show up at the polls. And so that, that's something that, that pollsters have to take into account. But I would say this, um, there are a couple of other indications aside from this poll that this race is very, very tight and that both parties believe that the outcome is uncertain. Uh, and, and that is that um, they're both investing money. Uh, both sides are investing money, uh, big money now in this race. The Democrats are not pouring money in, which they were not doing earlier. Uh, and, and we have uh, uh, Vice President Biden himself coming to the state tomorrow uh, for the first time. So he's had surrogates here before. Uh, he's had Joe Biden here. He's had Kamala Harris here. But uh, this is the first time Biden himself has come down. That tells me two things. It tells me, one, that they also believe that Georgia is in play, that their, their numbers uh, are showing that this is a winnable race. Uh, and telling me also something else that's very interesting, which is that they think they can afford to devote time and resources to Georgia, a state they don't really need to win. Um, if Biden's willing to go to Georgia and if they're willing to spend uh, money uh, on buying television ads in Georgia, it tells me that, um, you know, they're pretty confident. Uh, about the state of the race in, in other places um, where, where they've mainly been concentrating their efforts up until now, states like Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida. Um, so I, I'd say it's, it's a pretty good sign for uh, the Biden campaign that, that uh, they're now investing money and time in this state. Yeah, there. Uh, Biden is spending a good amount of this final week in both Georgia and then in Florida, as opposed to uh, Trump is all over the country. Uh, Mayor, I want to start picking apart just some of the really interesting cross tabs in this poll and in no particular order. But but there's one that I'm interested in getting your response to. Uh Kamala Harris was in uh, Atlanta last Friday, of course, and one of her purposes here was to rally African-American men to turn out for 
Biden. The Biden campaign has run a series of TV spots encouraging black men in Georgia to get out to vote for him. But the AJC poll shows that um, while certainly Biden wins the, the, the largest share of the black vote, black men, some 11 percent, say they prefer <laughs> Donald Trump. Um, help us understand that number and what the importance is of turning black men out to the polls for Democrats, that is. So so it's interesting um, when I when I read that, I thought back to a conversation that I had with a black male in East Point. Um, regarding, you know, elections and census at the time and just civic engagement. And he was talking about that he was thinking about voting for Trump because of the check, right? So that he received and, you know, the and I had to have this conversation around, like, it's, more, it's bigger than that. And mm -hmm. that check is not really, um, does nowhere near encapsulate really all of the issues on the ballot. So I started going through that with him. I really think it is um, a level of whether or not we keep people engaged between elections and how we help empower and educate the citizenry to understand really how this works. So black men, unfortunately, um, you know, especially with the murder of George Floyd and all the police brutality, all of the manifestations of systemic racism are often the victims of that, right? And in that level of intense victimization, um, you know, there may be people who still feel like, well, it doesn't work for me. At least he sent me a check or, you know, any number of things. But when I looked at the poll, I was very optimistic because 88 percent, right, um, seem to be aware and engaged in uh, what is going on. But we do have to think about the 11 percent. And the question becomes, you know, how do we really stop treating people like gumball machines and, and try to go to them when we need something and pull it out of them um, versus really having really tough conversations? So after that conversation, I think I was able to at least enlighten the black man that I was speaking to <laughs> about how it is bigger than the check. And that check probably, if you pay taxes, it's probably just your money coming to you if you're working, you know, like having that real conversation and about how, how politics is local and how it impacts your daily life. Um, but I, I think it's that, right? I think it's, you know, uh, a, a segment of this community, a demographic of this country that has constantly um, been victimized um, and been on the end of unfair, inequitable, unjust policies in this country. So, uh, all right, uh, let's look at the other side of that, Jim. Uh, the poll uh, found a surprising number of white voters in Georgia, an unusually large number compared to past presidential elections, who say they're going to vote for Joe Biden. I think you were up to 28 percent of white voters in the poll what was it, 20, typically we see about 22, 21, 22 percent of uh, uh, white voters that go for Democrats? I believe Hillary Clinton exit polls had her at 21%. Stacey Abrams kind of uh, surprised everybody by getting uh, 25% in, uh, in, in 2018. Uh, and this uh, level of 28% uh, is, is this, that's the key to, uh, to, to Joe Biden's competitiveness in Georgia. Uh, and you see it reflected in the, in the, uh, uh, the Purdue Ossoff Senate race, uh, where, where, uh, Ossoff is getting almost that, that identical number of, of white voter support. 
Uh, interestingly, in the in, in Senate race number two, the one where your primary uh, candidates are are, are uh, uh, Warnock, uh, Raphael Warnock, uh, Doug Collins, and Kelly Loeffler, Warnock is only getting nineteen percent of the white vote, which uh, and, and 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 he's the African American candidate. It, that tells you something. All right. So, uh, Todd, I want to bring you into the picture here and uh, ask you, 28 percent of the white vote in Georgia um, puts Biden in a pretty strong position to uh, win this state. It it does, if you believe the polls. And and I don't say that to throw anybody's polls under the under the bus. It's just that I, I have fundamentally believed that polls don't measure what we think they do anymore, or that it's it's become increasingly difficult to to pull. And one of those one of those things I want to mention is that one of the things I'm watching if I'm on David Perdue's team is how do we get Republicans who go out to vote for Trump to complete the ballot all the way down because Republicans historically are worse at that than Democrats. Uh, walking around my neighborhood, I've seen Biden signs that say under the Biden-Harris part, vote the Democratic ticket all the way down. And that's just part of the Democratic campaign culture that has never been part of the Republican campaign culture. And we've we've come close to losing races because of that. Um, and so that's one thing that's that's hard to measure, hard to predict. Um, but, you know, it, it, it cuts both ways. The other thing that I want to mention is that back when I was uh, a student at Emory, we talked a lot about the sort of the Jesse Helms effect on polling where people who were reached at home on the telephone by somebody they didn't know were reluctant to say they were voting for Jesse Helms. I wonder if we don't have some of that today. Um, I don't know who's going to be more reluctant to to admit whom they're voting for, whether it's going to be normal Republicans who are voting for Biden don't want to admit it, or, uh, or people somewhere in the middle who are voting for Trump and don't want to admit it. But I wonder if that's not coming back to affect uh, polling these days. Well, let, let me uh, say a word or two in defense of the poll. Uh, of course, I mean, we don't know for sure if they're, if they're exactly right. But I will say this. Uh, in 2016, uh, the polls in Georgia were very accurate. Uh, the final poll, at least the final polls in Georgia, had Trump leading uh, Clinton by uh, an average of four to five points. And uh, the actual margin for Trump was, was five points. Uh, in 2018, the polls actually underestimated Stacey Abrams' vote. They underestimated it. Uh, if you look at the final polls in Georgia, they had uh, Kemp leading Stacey Abrams by an average of three points. And the actual final margin was just over one point. Um, so, but that's still pretty close. Uh, there was one really bad poll in Georgia that pulled that a- a- average off, and that was by an, an, an outfit that's out with a whole bunch, whole bunch of garbage polls uh, in, in this uh, cycle, also uh, called the Trafalgar Group. So, I would urge everyone to ignore the Trafalgar Group polls. They had <laughs> Brian Kemp. They had, they had Brian Kemp leading by 12 points, by 12 points in their final poll. Uh, the actual margin was one point. So, uh, but in any event, I, I, if you look at the average, you're usually going to do pretty well. Now, uh, we know that in some of the swing states in 2018, uh, 2020, uh, 16, rather, 2016, uh, missed the mark uh, by a bit. 
uh, and underestimated Trump's support. Uh, but that was not the case in Georgia. Uh, and, and so I, I, I'm not expecting to see any kind of systematic error of that sort in the 2020 polling. Hey, Bill. Jim, uh, uh, beyond. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, before we went on air, you asked me uh, what, 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 two were the two, the, what was the most important takeaway uh, from this poll? And 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 I'll, I'll re- repeat myself here. And, and to me, it's it's number one. It's 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 that David Perdue is not running ahead of Donald Trump, and that's that that has got to be troublesome for him. Uh, he his 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 strategy all along has been to present a kind of a softer image of himself that would be more appealing uh, to 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 women voters in Georgia than than Donald Trump. And and it and it it appears that he is very very much locked into the 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 Trump Biden dynamic here. But I would I would also point something that that I think is just I was looking at at, at age groups in the presidential uh, in in the presidential poll, and and uh, and and they pretty much broke all uh, uh, were fairly evenly distributed until you get to the eighteen to twenty nine group, sixty three percent of of voters 18 to 29 were going for Biden. And if you're a Republican and you, that, that's, that's a number looking at the future. Uh, and, and, and if you're a Republican, that has got to be alarming. It's got to be alarming for the future mayor, but it doesn't necessarily have to alarm you for the current election because of the low propensity for young people to actually turn out to the polls to the extent that the 18 to 29 year olds may uh, in this poll, be heavily favoring uh, Biden. Uh, if they don't show up and vote, uh, it's a it's a problem for the Biden campaign, Mayor. Absolutely. You know, it's all about turnout, right? So, for me, um, the polls, I guess, have their place. But when you talk about polling so much, if voters or people are sitting there watching, and they might think that the decision has already been made, right? So when I see a poll, I'm always thinking, who's been polled? Who are these people? What is this group? We've all taken classes in statistics. We can make statistics say what we want them to say based upon who we sample, right? But the fundamental reality of it is, is those numbers mean absolutely nothing if people don't turn out to vote. And we don't know what that is until the election has happened um, through election day. And the early voting numbers are giving us a really good indication about where we might be going. Um, when you see turnout like this, I haven't seen turnout like this um, since the Obama election. I think it was the first one in 2008, right? Um, and so when when we're looking at this level of turnout, it is people are saying enough of it is enough. We understand that the people have the power and we make the decisions and we're going to show up today and through this election to voice what we believe and this isn't about politics our party we are really this is a humanity issue right when you have humanity and the state of the democracy on the ballot and you have someone occupying a position that clearly does not represent any level of humane thought um i think that's what we're seeing right now okay and yet uh the poll uh, and i want to get away from just talking about polling uh in the next segment of the show but the poll does show that the president's approval rating here is pretty much a push also. There are as many people who think he's doing a good job as uh, don't. Um, when we Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way. But as we do, give you the other kind of top line numbers. So 
uh, Jim has already sort of uh, mentioned it, but just to be clear, uh, in Senate race number one, uh, it, you've got Purdue and Ossoff in a virtual tie. And as Jim points out, it's a nationalized race. The numbers for those two candidates mimic uh, the, the Biden-Trump numbers. In Senate race number two, you've got Leffler polling at 20, Collins at 21. Obviously, that's a tie. And Warnock continues to be uh, Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, up there 34 uh, percent. So we'll watch how all that plays out. OK, when we come back, let's talk about some of the issues that are playing out this week and how they may make an impact on our races here in Georgia and the presidential contest as well. You're listening to Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The AJC's Jim Galloway, East Point Mayor Deanna Holiday Ingram, uh, Georgia Pundit's Todd Ream, and Emory University political science professor Alan Abramowitz with me today. Uh, Alan, let me start with you, if I may. Uh, so tonight, the U.S. Senate, after a furious push to uh, get uh, Amy Coney Barrett seated on the Supreme Court quickly, will vote to do just that, confirm her. She'll take her place on the court almost immediately. Um, Republicans think this is going to be, be this will help them in the week ahead make their case for why Donald Trump should be reelected. And I assume that David Perdue and the sitting U.S. Senator by appointment, Kelly Leffler, think this will be of value to them as well. What, what is your take at this point on just how important that might be in being persuasive to uh, uh, voters? I, I don't think it's going to change the trajectory of the race. We, we, we've already been dealing with the Senate nomination now. I mean, this, this uh, Supreme Court nomination for uh, uh, a few weeks. Uh, and the, uh, the thought that th- th- this might be uh, advantageous to uh, Trump and Republicans, uh, I think just hasn't been borne out. Um, what we're seeing, in fact, is over, overall, as you might expect, people respond to this along party lines. Uh, that Republicans, of course, support our nomination. Uh, Democrats oppose it. Uh, if anything, though, what we're seeing this year, which is somewhat different from what we've seen in uh, previous uh, elections, is, is that Democrats seem to be a little more uh, uh, concerned about the, uh, the court as an issue than Republicans right now uh, and, and about the potential impact of an Amy Coney Barrett nomination on the balance of the court and on the outcome of future cases particularly those in, in, involving uh, abortion rights and, uh, and the Affordable Care Act. So uh, I don't expect it at this point to really uh, make any difference in, in the last week of the campaign. You know, uh, Todd, one of the interesting things about this, though, is, as Alan points out, the Affordable Care Act will be in uh, front of the court on November 10th. Then we're going to uh, see challenges to the le- to the legality, constitutionality of Roe from states like Louisiana, Georgia, down the road at some point, we imagine. But even most immediately, it's fascinating to me, Todd, that uh, Pennsylvania has already already went before the Supreme Court fair, uh, just last in the last week, basically, to challenge a ruling that ballots that are p- 
postmarked by election night in Pennsylvania could still be counted up up to three days after the election if they're received by those three days. With Amy Coney Barrett about to sit on the court, Pennsylvania has already gone back and said they want to hear, have the court look at this again. Republicans in Pennsylvania, a clear sign of how Republicans feel about what Amy Coney Barrett might do on their behalf in the election next week and, and, and in the days following. I, I'm not sure I agree just because the barriers to getting in front of the Supreme Court are so high and the barriers and specifically the barriers to getting a um, a, a quick judgment out of that court uh, are so high. I'm not, I'm not sure that represents anything more than the general willingness of any state attorney general or lawyers for the state to run around and try to draw as much attention to what they're doing as possible. Um, I'm, I'm not sure well, that, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that, that it's realistic to expect that there's going to be, uh, some action by the Supreme court in the next, uh, what, eight days, um, to, to change the vote counting. I, I, I'm not sure that that's a, a harbinger of much other than that. You know, perhaps somebody's thinking about running for higher office in Pennsylvania in the future. Well, Mayor, the, the Supreme Court did act in an emergency uh, uh, setting yeah. to tell to to send the case back. Say we're not going to take this up. If Pennsylvania wants to count ballots or three days afterward. They can. The fact they're going back again. Maybe it, the cynicism arises from the fact that President Trump has made it clear he sees Amy Coney Barrett as a person who will uh, help him if he needs help in a tightly contested race uh, in the weeks ahead. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Todd to a certain extent because what we saw happen with the census and the quick response from the court, actually, which allowed the administration to end the census by over two weeks early, right? So when politics are at play, unfortunately, I mean, as a lawyer, you know, that's not supposed to matter in justice and law and procedures and processes. Um, I I just kind of am not really a realist and, and really think of, look at what is happening and think that anything is possible and that we have to be prepared um, for anything that happens. And, ha- and the best defense right now and offense is for people to vote. Right. For this not to really change um, what people are were thinking and, and really looking at what is real and not becoming, um, you know, one issue people and realizing the impact of that. Yeah, I, I think that uh, what Republicans are um, looking at here is, is uh, the potential that uh, there could be uh, challenges uh, in in certain swing states if the vote is very, very close. Uh, there could be challenges to the counting of absentee ballots uh, and, and other procedures. Uh, and uh, under those circumstances, if we have a case that is, uh, uh, gets appealed to the Supreme Court, as we had with Bush v. Gore back in 2000, you know, having Amy Coney Barrett on the court could potentially make a difference. But you know, I think that would only happen uh, in the event that this is a very close election and that there are states still in play uh, where there are disputed disputes over the count uh, that could change the outcome of, of the election, uh, as we had in 2000 with Florida. 
uh, I don't expect that to happen. I mean, I, I, I think that's unlikely uh, in, in 2020. Yeah, uh, you know, Bill, I, I think there's a couple of things, a couple of points here. Number one, I uh, to to, uh, and I can't remember who was making this point. Maybe it was it was you. Is uh, that uh, it's very interesting that Democrat that that abortion has not become the central issue in 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 Barrett's uh, nomination to the Supreme Court. That 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 Democrats chose to, chose not to emphasize uh, uh, a woman's right to choose. Uh, there instead they have really really honed their honed their message on on the ACA and a hearing uh on on the constitutionality of 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 Obamacare on November 10th just just days away from now so so i think that to me i think is is significant uh the other thing i would uh it's what, what it's it's what, the other thing i would i would point to is is uh over the weekend we had uh we had uh uh both Kelly Leffler's staff and Mike Pence's staff uh come down with cases of covid which and and they've really really tried to keep a lid on it and mm. and and it, it it just shows you uh and and one of the reasons just one of the reasons has got to be the Barrett nomination uh to to keep pushing it to go forward and and i uh, it, it's it's kind of astounding that 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 covid contagion is now is now kind of top secret in in washington you, you don't you don't tell people who's affected because because both leffler and and mike pence are will, will have to be uh in in the chamber tonight when barrett is confirmed you know what? That's a good place to take a break because I do want to come back and talk about the uh, impact that we think as uh, COVID-19 is going to have on the election. So why don't we get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and talk about that and a lot more on today's Political Rewind. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. So Todd Ream, uh, Mark Short, Vice President Pence's chief of staff, and at least four other members of that uh, staff in the White House uh, have tested positive for COVID-19. The vice president is continuing his campaign schedule because uh, he says he's tested uh, negative. Uh, meanwhile, as Jim pointed out before the break, Kelly Leffler uh, has a couple people on her staff who have tested positive. What, what, but, but to bring it back to just how Georgians are reacting, it is interesting to me that with a week to go until the election, Despite even, well, of course, these outbreaks occurred since the poll was taken. Nevertheless, uh, the White House saw a great many uh, uh, positive test results uh, a couple of weeks ago. Biden only leads Trump by about five or six points in the AJC poll in terms of who will do a better job on the coronavirus. In any case, Todd, how big an impact at this point, no matter what he does, Trump can't seem to get away from COVID-19 as a dominant issue in this race. Todd, comment on that. The, the the thing that's been most interesting to me has been the extent to which the Republican base has become not just 
partisans like we always were historically, but they have become true believers in everything and all things Trump. And the when I, I've been touring some of the uh, more Republican enclaves of the state of Georgia recently, uh, and the amount of mask wearing uh, in some of these areas is just infinitesimal. Um, and there is still a, among some folks, among some folks whom I know to be intelligent, educated, well-meaning people to believe that, that this is still a fake. And so I think it's much like anything else uh, in this election in that the main effect it is going to have is to galvanize the supporters on both sides. Um, I, I think perhaps a bigger effect might be seen in what happens with Biden. I, I, if, if I had been running Joe Biden's campaign, I would be more concerned about the, uh, the stay at home lack and lack of, uh, the lack of events. I don't know how he did. I mean, I, and I think his, his position on the issue sort of foreclosed him from having events, but it has seemed to me that for several months at least, the Biden campaign has been playing not to lose. And in my experience, that's always a, a, a bad way to do it. Um, I, I think it's really just people have stopped believing anything other than what they want to believe. And to the extent that you are fired up to go uh, vote to prove that COVID and the coronavirus is all a scheme by the uh, – academic, uh, liberal media, elites, whatever, um, it's going to keep you fired up even if you start coughing. Um, I just wonder what's going to happen if you're standing in line on Tuesday on election day and the person in front of you has, has a cough. Uh, are you going to believe that it's just seasonal allergies or are you going to sort of exit yourself from the line quickly? Uh, that's, that's the bigger question in my mind. You know, Mayor, it is interesting to hear uh, Trump voters, uh, and some of them, any number of them, have been quoted in uh, newspapers and television as saying that one of the reasons they're voting for Trump for re-election is that he's how, no, he's so much better at handling the crises that we're facing right now. Uh, with uh, fascinating, uh, considering he's had the opportunity to do that uh, certainly through twenty twenty. Yeah. So you know those. I, I think when I hear statements like that, I'm like, what, where are they living and what information are they looking at? Because just this past Friday, we had over 83,000 new cases in one day, which is the highest number in one day of new coronavirus cases. And we have almost a quarter of a million people, 225,000 plus people who have lost their lives to this, this, this virus. So when you talk about, when, you, when people start talking like that, those to me are extremely politically charge statements and people who just want to support their position regardless of the science, the data, and the medical experts, and the clear lack of leadership um, on this coronavirus issue. I mean, that there's no way to mince words on that. I mean, so much so till his actions even put him at risk, and he became infected with the coronavirus, right? So, like, when you are looking at the facts and the reality of what is happening— I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. It's not political. It's not party. This is life or death. We're talking about saving lives. Wearing masks are necessary to save lives. We were the first city in Fulton County to implement the mask mandate. There's some things that you can't mince words on because during this pandemic, 
people's lives are at stake. And we need leadership that is going to help ensure that more Americans are able to stay alive and be healthy and thrive with this virus being among us, because we don't know how long it's going to be here. And we need somebody who's going to follow the science, the data, and medical experts around the vaccinations and making sure that we are not going to do more harm to Americans than is necessary, than, than is, you know, is expected, because really there is a way to do this in a more responsible um, way that puts people first and, and values the lives of people. But I, I, I have no words when I hear statements like that because people are losing their lives daily. And even the people who haven't lost their lives, those who have been affected, are going to have health complications for a while. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that sentiment. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's really bad news for the Trump campaign that the virus is coming back uh, across the country uh, in, in, uh, just, just as we're entering the final week of the campaign. But the closing argument uh, uh, that Trump has been making is essentially that he's the candidate to vote for because he's getting the country back to normal. Uh, and he keeps saying over and over again that we're rounding the corner and that this thing is going to end, and even without the vaccine being available, this thing is going to end. And what we're seeing here is that the reality is just not cooperating with him on that. Uh, I want to say a couple other things about the direction of the two campaigns as well. Um, I think the Biden campaign made a very conscious decision not to hold large in-person rallies and events uh, and to draw contrast in that regard between their behavior and what the Trump campaign is doing in holding these large in-person events that have the potential to spread the virus. And so while those kinds of uh, dis social distancing events that Biden is having don't uh, result in the kinds of crowds and the kinds of energy that you get with a large in-person rally, I think when people are watching this on their televisions, which is the way almost everyone is seeing it, not in person, I think that they're getting the message that Biden is treating this much more seriously or taking it much more seriously and following the guidelines, and Trump is not. And the fact that we're seeing these outbreaks right now uh, among more people in the White House, uh, on the vice president's staff, uh, in this case, is, uh, you know, also is kind of reinforcing that message. Finally, I want to say something about the advantage that the Biden campaign has right now in money, which is stunning. The Biden campaign is outspending the Trump campaign by a wide margin uh, in the swing states right now. They have raised a lot more money in the final few months uh, of the campaign, and they are now spending a lot more on television advertising and social media advertising than the Trump campaign is, which is not something I expected uh, back in, uh, you know, in June and July when Trump had a lot more money. So not holding rallies is one thing, not having money to spend on advertising for a final push uh, and having to actually cut off advertising and actually having to suspend your advertising in some of the swing states like Michigan. I think the Republicans have written off Michigan at this point. I really think they've written it off. Uh, I know, Bill, I know we're running close on time here. Uh, so I'll try to I'll, I'll try to be uh, quick here. But uh, of course, Joe Biden is going down to Warm Springs uh, tomorrow to visit there. And 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 you can say many things about that trip. Uh, but one thing it will highlight is 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 kind of uh, FDR was all about the role of a of an active federal government uh, aimed at at the 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 greatest problem of the day, which was, of course, the Depression. 
and and I think this is a this will be a good opportunity for for Biden to make the same point. Donald Trump, of course, you know, early in the spring made the decision that that the that the the pandemic was the responsibility of each individual state, and they would have 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 their have their own have have their own approaches to it. Uh, I think this is an opportunity for for Biden to announce to kind of emphasize the fact that of of a of a federal uh, of a wholesale and robust federal response. Um, it's an interesting decision uh, to go to Warm Springs, Jim. Um, Todd, I'm wondering, you know, I, I, I suspect that this will be a one-day event, a one-hour event, whatever, that won't have any enormous impact. But to the extent, if I'm a Republican and I really wanted to somehow turn that going to Warm Springs against Biden, I would certainly make the point that it was FDR who started the, many of the social uh, federal government programs that have continued to drain the treasury uh, and and create social welfare programs that the country can't afford. I mean, you could use it against him, I suppose, if you thought it was important to. I, I mean, at some level, I, I, I'm not sure that Warm Springs has the resonance among day-to-day voters that it does uh, among those of us who are either political or history nerds. Um, but I also want to say that as you know, my grandfather was uh, imprisoned by uh, FDR, and that's one of the other things that, that I think uh, that, that I wonder why we haven't had a, a reconsideration of was the internment of Japanese Americans uh, during the Second World War. He gets all this credit for being a, a for, for putting in place a lot of the modern welfare state. Um, if if that's something that you think somebody should get credit for. But I think that uh, what, what he did during the Second World War also shows the hazards of a government that has grown big enough to give you everything that you want is that it can also take everything away from you. All right. Uh, that's a fascinating take on it. Alan, uh, we're running short, but go ahead. Weigh in real quick. Well, I have to say, yeah, I mean, that, that was the horrible thing that happened. Uh, but we have to ask the question, who is it that's been putting people in cages and, and putting people in internment camps now? Oh. That now? Right. It's not the Democrats. Right. It was during the Obama administration. Not really. Not the uh, way we're seeing it now. All right. I know. I'd rather not cages. get into that. Yeah, I don't want to get it's into that fight. Humanity. It's too late in the show to do it. But uh, so let me just Save say this. Uh, it's. It is going to be fascinating to see what kind of speech Biden gives in Warm Springs at the Little White House. And, of course, we'll uh, comment on it on Political Rewind as it all unfolds. Uh, Alan Abramowitz, thank you so much for being back with us again today. Todd Ream. Uh, Mayor Ingram, it's great to have you back on the show. I hope you'll join us again. And, and Jim Galloway, I'll see you again for Friday's Political Rewind. Um In the meantime, tomorrow we're going to go back and take a look at how women voters are lining up with a week to go. We've got our women's panel, Melita Easters, Julianne Thompson will uh, be with us to talk about that race. And uh, who else? Oh, Dr. Andre Gillespie will be with us for that one, too. So it should be a terrific show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Wear a mask. Get your flu shot. See you all again tomorrow.